please turn with me uh, in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 through verse 18. I want to give a, a thank you, a shout out to everyone that served for Kids Camp. We had Kids Camp uh, Wednesday through today. It went great. Uh, we had a lot of people that invested their time to invest in those kids, and it was a, a real, real blessing. So I know uh, many of you served and want to say thank you to that. Philippians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 2. Verse 12 through 18. If you'd read with me and then we'll pray together. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also may be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the study of the book of Philippians and the truth of joy that fortifies us to find ourselves running to you to be our strong tower. We understand that the enemy to joy many times is grumbling and complaining and fighting. We ask that you would do a work in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. I know that we're busy and there's so many things that are on our hearts and minds. We give you our worries. We give you our concerns. We give you our distractions. And we ask that our hearts would be that fertile soil for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Personal ownership. How do you treat a rental car compared to the vehicle that you own? Ever find yourself saying, oh, it's just a rental, right? Compared to a vehicle that you have paid off, you made those payments for years and it's paid off, or you worked hard to save up cash and you paid for it in cash. How do you treat a home or an apartment that you rent compared to a home that you own? A little differently, right? Personal ownership. This moment of personal ownership came to me when I finished Bible college. It was a two-year Bible college. I was 20 years old. And blessing to me, thankfully to me, my grandma, she paid for my tuition to Bible college. What a, what a blessing for her to be able to do that. And then she also gave me $121 a month for living expenses. Now, I don't know how you, she came up with $121 a month. But if you know my grandma, it made sense. You know, she was really good at uh, making her money go a, a distance. So I'd been out of Bible college for a few months and landed in uh, Boise, Idaho area and was serving at a little Calvary chapel there and waiting tables. My dad calls and he says, Eric, I just want to let you know that that $121 that we've been sending, because the money would come through my dad, even though it was from my grandma, he said, you're not getting it anymore. 
and all of your expenses are on you. So you better figure it out and take care of all your bills. If you need something, we're here for you, but you're on your own. Have a great day. See ya. Bye. Right? And it was probably one of the best things that my dad ever did for me. And I'm sure he had it all planned out. You know, at this point, and he settled a little bit, and he's got a job waiting tables. He needs to be responsible for all of his own, on his own bills. And I felt that personal ownership. And what Paul is doing for us in this section of Scripture is he's wanting us to take personal ownership of our salvation. If you know Christ as your Savior and you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, you're saved and you have that salvation. It's a gift that God has given to you. So take hold of it, strengthen it, grow in it, and work it out. That's really the exhortation of this passage that we'll see tonight. Let's remember context really quick before we get into this paragraph. Remember chapter 1, verse 27, we were challenged. It says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens of the gospel, we were challenged to do. Last week in in chapter 2, we were challenged to put other people's needs before our own, to have the mind of Christ. We looked at the exaltation of Christ, that he is above every name, that every tongue confesses and every knee bows that Christ is Lord. We ended with the lordship of Jesus Christ in 9, 10, and 11. So what does the lordship of Jesus Christ look in my life? This next paragraph tells us. What does it look like to have conduct that reflects this gospel? This paragraph, it tells it and describes it to us. So this is where we're headed tonight. We're going to look at the call, the power, the application, and the result. First the call, then the power, the application, and then the result. So verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not, at, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence. You know, you guys are students of the Bible. The word therefore, it takes us in to that prior paragraph. In light of Jesus being our Lord, in light of having the mind of Christ and esteeming others better than myself, my beloved, Paul writes and he says, my beloved. He wants them to know before he gives them this challenge that they're loved. When we're communicating with people, and especially when we're challenging people, we want to affirm that we love them. We want to remind them that we care for them. Maybe you've said it a thousand times, a million times, but it's important to say it again. I'm sure that Paul had expressed his love to the church of Philippi many times before, but he says, you're my beloved. At the beginning of the letter, Paul described the church is this. He says, I long for all of you with the affections of Christ. I love you the way that Christ loves you. I long for you with the affection of Christ. At the end of the letter, he's going to write and declare that he says, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. He says, I long for you guys, and you're my joy and my crown. And here in the middle, he's saying, you're my beloved. Make sure to take the time to let people know you love them when you're encouraging them. The second half of verse 12, Paul continues this theme of saying, you know what, don't just obey in my presence, but obey even more in my absence. If our behavior as a Christian, if our Christian living is determined by who we're with, we're missing something. Anytime that we've got to look over our shoulder 
that's probably the wrong thing to be doing. Have you, you ever found yourself going, well, I, I got to make sure nobody's watching. I don't want anybody to walk in the room. Then our, our obedience is dictated by who we're with. And we want our obedience to be determined by our relationship with Christ, that, that he's with us. So Paul senses this in the church of Philippi, and he's saying, don't just obey because I'm there. Obey even more when I'm absent. And here's the call, if you're taking notes. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Work, produce, to bring forth, to labor. Yes, God is calling us to labor in our relationship with the Lord, to work. We sang tonight, and man, I'm so thankful for our worship team. They do a great job and prepare these songs and lead us in worship to seek first to the kingdom of God. That takes work sometimes, doesn't it? That takes determination. That takes effort. And so God is calling us to this place. He's saying, work out your, your salvation. Put ardor into it. Labor. Notice the word work out. It's not work for. Don't, you're not working for your salvation. You're not working on your salvation. You're working out your salvation. So God has given to you salvation, and we get to live it out. We get to work it out. It's similar to going to the gym and, and exercising. You have muscles. Now you're working them out. And if you want to strengthen your muscles, you go to the gym. How do you get better at doing pull-ups or push-ups? By Googling it? Is that what you do? You Google how to get better at doing pull-ups. How to get better at doing push-ups. No, you'll probably get better at pull-ups and push-ups if you do pull-ups and push-ups. That, that's the way that that tends to go. And so if we want to grow in our relationship with the Lord and be a stronger Christian, we want to work out our salvation. That's what God is calling us to do. He's asking us to put effort into this. This working out of our, our salvation has nothing to do with eternal security. Instead, the focus is on the practical matters of how we ought to live out the gospel in our daily lives. This is not something that we're doing to earn or deserve salvation. This is something that we're doing because we are saved. Now, church, I know that many of you know this, but I want to encourage you and challenge you right now. What kind of effort are you putting into your relationship with the Lord and in your Christian life? Because it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to get calloused. It's easy to get focused on other areas of our lives, on the physical things, the same things that we can see or touch, the things that we want or we desire, and sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years go by without us putting much effort in our relationship with the Lord, are growing to be stronger in Him or be used by the Lord in a greater way. From every indication that we have of the church of Philippi, they're doing well. They love the Lord. There's some things that need to be worked out. There's some division that's taking place. They need to be challenged in some certain areas. But these are not a group of people that have fallen away from the Lord or are in rebellion. And here, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is exhorting them and saying, come on, work out your salvation. Put, put effort into your relationship with the Lord. And you've probably noticed that God blesses even the littlest amounts of effort, doesn't he? How many times have we come to a Saturday night service, we're tired, we're wore out, we're thinking about not coming, we show up, and God meets us in a powerful way. You're working out your salvation. 
You choose to serve. You choose to put other people's needs before your own. And God blesses it in a way that you couldn't even comprehend. There's an area of sin in our lives, and God begins to convict. He begins to challenge. We say, okay, I'm going to put some effort into this area and press into the Lord and memorize Scripture, have some accountability, have other believers praying for us, and we see God do a work in our lives. Work out your your own salvation. Continue to grow. Don't be content for where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. This is my experience is I'm either growing or drifting. There's no in-between. I like to think we can just coast. I'm not drifting from the Lord. I'm not losing ground. But we're either drifting or we're growing. We're pressing in to our relationship with the Lord. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is the next thing that we read in the scripture. This is an awe for God with fear and trembling. It's neat how these are linked together because as we're putting effort into our relationship with God, we're not doing it in a prideful manner. We're not doing it in an attitude of, look at me, look at all the work that I'm doing. We're doing it with one of fear and trembling. We're doing it with humility. We're doing it as a worshiper before God, going, God, you are amazing. And I fear you and I tremble before you. And I'm relying upon your power and your strength. A lot of times I think we don't understand the fear of God. You don't hear the fear of God talked about a lot. But when you read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it's a theme. The respect and the awe for God. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is to fear God. That respect for God. My heart isn't going to be teachable until I'm walking in the fear of God. So what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to be in this place of of trembling and awe and respect before God? I think about it this way. Amber and I, we, our first home that we bought years ago after we were first married uh, was downtown by the Olympic Training Center. The house was built in 1947, had been a rental for a lot of years, had been empty before we bought it. So it was a fixer-upper, and we had a lot of fun working on it and fixing it up. We knew nothing about houses. Still don't know a lot about houses, but knew nothing at that point in our lives. The house needed a new gas stove, a new gas range. We were on a shoestring budget, found the cheapest gas stove that we could find at Home Depot, and of course, we were going to put it in ourselves to save money. So I go downstairs into the basement, and I turn the gas off, go upstairs, unhook the old range, put in the new one, go turn the gas on, and it was an old cast iron pipe. The, the, the gas went through an old cast iron pipe, and the shutoff valve just, just broke. It was so old that it just, just broke off. But the bottom of the, the valve was still in the, in the joint. And I go, oh, it's all good. No worries. This is great, you know? So we just continued on with life, and went down the road, and a few years later, we sold the house, and you get the home inspection, and the home inspector's got his deal to check for gas leaks, and he's like, you got a gas leak right here, and he's like, do you know what you did? He's like, you could have easily blown up your whole family, and by that time, Hannah was born, and because I didn't know what I was doing. I got to tell you, I approach natural gas in our home with fear and trembling. (laughs) Now, 
And I can be a cheapskate. I'll be the first to admit it. But I pay for it now. I, I pay somebody else to do it. I say, I'm going to let you have the risk because I don't, I don't want to blow up my whole entire family, right? See, and there's a part of our relationship with God where we need to have that kind of respect, that, that fear and, and that trembling. But the awe of God is inspired by his love. Yes, he has that kind of power. But the greatest thing about God is his love and his grace. And when we experience his love and his grace, it develops, I don't want to hurt God's heart. You probably had the experience with your father where you knew that he could bring a world of hurt upon you. And there was the beginnings of your life that you feared your dad in that way. But how does that fear mature as you grow? You come to go, well, I'm getting older. I could probably take dad if I needed to. But I don't want to hurt my dad's heart. It's a fear that's inspired by love. So we talked about working out our salvation. When was the last time you've been in awe of God? For real, you know, in that place of being a worshiper. Well, God, I love you. There's no one like you. You're powerful. You're holy, yet harmless, and worshiping him. And so as we work out our salvation, we do it as a worshiper in fear and trembling. Verse 13 is the power. So we have the call, but we also have the power. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So we're working out what God is working in. Isn't that beautiful? So he's supplying the power, and he's asking us to then live out what he's pouring in to our lives. If we leave this out and we only focus on the prior verse, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and we don't identify and understand that it's the power of God, we're going to miss the boat completely, aren't we? There's a couple of quotes on this that I, I would want to read to you. This is by Hansen. It says, When our finite work is empowered by God's work, then our work is an expression of God's work. So here's my finite power, right? I have very limited power. And when God, we're empowered by God, then we're ex an expression of God's work. Wearsby said this, Too many Christians obey God only because of pressure on the outside and not power on the inside. I like that. So many times our Christian life is obedience based on pressures from the outside. This is the expectation that we put on ourselves, that others place upon us. But we're to live from the inside out. We're to live in the new covenant of God writing his law upon our hearts. The power of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out within us. When we received Christ our Savior, we became the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us in John 15, verse 4, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we have a tension here. God's saying, yes, I want you to put effort into your relationship with me, into your character, into your Christian living, but don't rely upon your own power. Don't rely upon your own strength. Realize that it's only going to come through relationship with me. So here's another question for you tonight. What's God working in you? What is he working in you? Because this verse says, work out what God is working in. 
And you have your own relationship with the Lord. Why did Peter walk on the water? Everybody wants to walk on the water. Everybody thinks they should walk on the water because Jesus called him to. Jesus looked at Peter and says, you, come out here. Peter's like, all right, let's do this. God didn't say that to John, didn't say that to James. He said it to Peter. So what's God working in you? What's God working in me? What is your desire? What do you feel like the Lord's been speaking to you through his word? Work out what he's working in you, and then notice what's the purpose for his good pleasure. It's for God's pleasure. It's for God's satisfaction. It's for God's glory. So you have a loving father that saved you, that's beginning to write his will on your heart and life. And as you begin to live that out, he goes, oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's exactly what I desired for you to do. It's our relationship with him lived out. So what have we seen so far? The call and the power. And now we get to see the application. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is an ouch verse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. You can say ouch. That hurts a little bit. There's not a lot of wiggle room in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. This is an all-inclusive imperative. Do is imperative in the Greek language. It's a command that God is giving to us. And it is all, all things. Now let's be honest. There are many things that are easier to do without complaining, right? It's pretty easy to eat a great steak without complaining, right? It's not so easy to pick up the dog poop without complaining, right? It's pretty easy to receive a promotion at work that comes with a pay raise without complaining. But it's a lot harder to be overlooked and maybe lose responsibility and salary and to endure that without complaining. Did God mean it? Absolutely. Do all things without complaining and without disputing. This is the application. This is what it means and this is what it looks like to have conduct that lines up with the gospel. To have the mindset of Christ, to esteem others better than ourselves. To be able to shine into a dark world right here, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. The word complaining also means murmuring. Some translations translate it as murmuring or grumbling. I like murmur because it gives a good indication of complaining. Murmur, 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 murmur. It is so easy to go through our days. Murmur, 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 murmur. You don't even have to say it out loud, right? You can just go through your day like an Eeyore where it is the worst. I'm, I'm just going to put my head down and have this attitude of, of grumbling and complaining. Murmuring and complaining was a big issue for the children of Israel. If you track their experience from when they were delivered out of Egypt to when they got in the promised land, it was dominated by murmuring. It was dominated by complaining. As soon as they're delivered, God, through the cloud, leads them to the Red Sea. So God is directing them. They're following the cloud. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh decides he wants to come and destroy them. 
right away, they start complaining. God, why did you do this? God, why did you bring us out here? We're, we're done for. It wasn't an attitude of saying, God, we trust you. Some of you are familiar with the story. God parts the Red Sea. They cross over to the other side on dry land. Pharaoh says, I'll try this. God collapses the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. A great victory. And they do rejoice. They go from complaining to rejoicing. Their circumstance changed. They go a little bit further in the wilderness and they run out of water. What do they start to do? They start to complain. They start to grumble. They, God provides water supernaturally. They continue to move forward in their journey. What do they start complaining about? No meat. God's giving bread from heaven, manna every day. And they're like, I'm sick of manna. Manna Cheerios, manna Cotti, manna everything. I just give me meat, right? Now, I like to pick on the children of Israel, but if God took meat out of my diet, it'd be really hard for me not to complain. Come on, right? So they're like, give me some meat. And they're complaining to God. They move on to complaining about Moses. That's an easy target. Complain about your leadership, right? Moses, this is all your fault. Why in the world did you bring us out here? This was a terrible idea. Murmur, 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 murmur. Until Exodus chapter 21, God says, I'm tired of it. He sends serpents to start biting them. I think God is giving us a very visual picture of what murmuring and complaining does to our soul. It's like sending a serpent to our soul. It just latches on and begins to suck the very life out of us. Moses is feeling bad for the children of Israel. They're starting to die from these bites, from these snakes. So he cries out to God. God says what? Lift up a serpent, place it on a pole. Everyone who looks to the serpent will be healed, will be saved. Everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, as he's teaching and he is sharing, he says that he is lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus is liking himself to a serpent. Seems like a weird illustration. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the curse for us. That everyone who looks to Christ is saved. What's the answer to murmuring and complaining? We find it in Exodus 21. It's looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because my circumstance seems very bleak until I look to Christ. The serpent upon the cross, the serpent upon the pole, he who knew no sin became sin for me. And that's where my soul oftentimes is set free from murmuring and complaining. And we're encouraged to learn from Israel's example in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10. It says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Did you catch that? God says, don't complain like the children of Israel. They were an example for you. Through their complaining, they were destroyed by the destroyer. Do I ever see complaining, murmuring, as an opportunity for Satan to bring destruction in my life and in the life of others? Remember the title that's given to Satan in the book of Revelation? is he's the accuser of the brethren day and night. Sounds a lot like complaining, doesn't it? So he loves to go before the Father and accuse. He loves to come to us and accuse. He loves for us to think ill of other believers. 
the big picture view of Philippians is they were fighting with each other. We know that. And here Paul is saying, don't murmur and complain about other believers. You're opening up the door for Satan to destroy your soul. Satan, the accuser of the brother and the hater of God, he loves it when we join in on his chorus. So when I'm murmuring about God, when I'm complaining about somebody else, I'm joining in on Satan's chorus. And Satan's like, sweet. I got him right where I want him. I'm destroying his soul. This is the parallel. We will either walk in thanksgiving and rejoicing or complaining and fighting. We choose it. We go through our days. I'm going to murmur and fight. I'm going to choose to be thankful. Try it out. You're at the grocery store. The lines are long. Maybe you're at Sprouts on a Wednesday. It's double sale day, which means triple the lines, right? Standing there in line, and you're like, I don't care how much money I save. This is not worth it. How slow can that checker be? There's 50 people in line. Murmur, 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 murmur. Before you know it, you're getting in a fight in line because somebody cut you off, right? Or you can look around and you can go, wow, look at all this food in this grocery store. Look at my cart. It is filled with delicious things that I'm going to enjoy. And I'm even getting them for a better deal. God, thank you so much. One or the other. Disputing, murmuring, or complaining. I was mowing my lawn right before coming to church tonight. And my tendency as I was mowing my lawn was to look at all of the areas that had winter kill. Murmur, 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 murmur. Complain, complain. Why can't I get this grass to grow? The weeds. And then I was thinking about this Bible study, and I was like, Lord, thank you for this grass right here. This is a good patch right here. I'm going to be thankful for this. (laughs) That's the reality of where we live, right? You can be looking at all your spouse's weaknesses, murmur, murmur, complain, complain, or you can go, God, thank you so much for providing my spouse. It's exactly what I needed. So thankful that I don't have to do life alone. This is a strong warning from the Lord. It's a strong application. Don't murmur. Don't dispute. The murmuring leads to disputing. Notice the result. It's a really powerful result. Notice this with me in verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The result, if we choose to be thankful... If we choose to not can complain and dispute is that we will become blameless, harmless children of God without fault. Blameless speaks of being innocent or above reproach. It's not that you're perfect, but your life is above reproach. That's the result of a person walking in thanksgiving. Harmless is pure. The word literally means pure. It's wine that's not been diluted. It's metals that have not been weakened. Our lives and our hearts are going to be pure as we walk in thanksgiving, blameless and harmless. Without fault is very similar to being blameless. Crooked. Let's look at this word crooked in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So there's a contrast between children of God 
and crooked and perverse generation. So we're walking through this life as children of God, being thankful in a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked is twisted or backwards. It's morally bent. And we're seeing this more and more. Do we live in a crooked world? Twisted world, a backwards world. Things that are right are being called wrong. Things that are wrong are being called right. And that was the same for the church of Philippi. In this Roman colony, it was twisted. It was broken morally. And it was also perverse. Perverse is to depart from the standards of moral values. Is that the world that we live in today? Yes, it is. And God doesn't call us to be frightened of the world that we live in. Doesn't call us to complain about the world that we live in. He calls us to be lights and to shine as lights in the world. And as society and the world gets darker, the light shines the brighter. The end of verse 15, this phrase, you shine as lights in the darkness, it literally means in the Greek language to shine as a light in the sky. That you're, you're shining as a star in the sky. So that's the picture. God wants us to be a star that shines in a dark world. Practically, how do we do that? I think this is the million-dollar question, right? How do we fulfill the Great Commission? How do we be a light in a dark world? You know how God's telling us to do it? Don't be a murmurer. Don't be someone who's disputing. Be someone who's thankful, and your life is going to shine out as the child of God. People are going to know that you're the child of God. That's incredible. That's life-changing. So you're at work on Monday morning, and instead of entering into all of the chatter of complaints, you enter into thanksgiving. Everybody starts to tee off on the boss, and you go, hey, I'm just thankful to have a job. They might get sick of you pretty quick, but they're going to realize that you're marching to a different drum. You know, you go to your neighborhood HOA meeting, if your neighborhood has HOA, and you hear all the complaints about the neighborhood, just start talking about how thankful you are to live in that neighborhood. People are going to go, what is wrong with you, right? All we do at these meetings is complain, right? It really causes us to stand out. It really causes us to, to see that we've got the joy of the Lord living inside of us. Could being thankful and murmuring and complaining have that big of a result, that big of impact? Absolutely. Think about it as a believer, as a believer, if you know someone who's genuinely thankful, who tends to not complain, what kind of impact does that have on your soul and your life? Pretty good. It's pretty wonderful. It's pretty, pretty powerful. So you want to shine? Man, take this to heart. Say, God, I want to be thankful. I don't want to murmur and complain. And thankfully, we've got God's power. Don't forget the verse prior, that God is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, let me develop this a little bit more fully before we hit the next few verses. Does this mean that we become fake and shallow and never express heartbreak, confusion, or difficulty? Because I think some of you could read this verse and hear me talking in this way and think it's inappropriate for you to ever share, man, I had a really tough day. I'm not doing very well. Could you pray for me? Things are really hard at work. Is that what God's telling us to do? No. God wants us to be real with one another, to be real with him, to express needs to one another. We see that throughout the whole New Testament. But that's different 
than complaining and fighting. That's sharing a real need. That's being honest about where we're at and allowing someone to pray for us and to encouraging us. Murmuring is never letting something go. Right? Sharing a need is, I'm heartbroken. I'm really hurting here. Can you pray for me? Receiving what someone's sharing with you and receiving that encouragement. So I'd be bummed if you took this to to say I could never be real or be honest with somebody else anymore. As hopefully we're shining as lights in the world, verse 16, we hold fast the word of life. We're holding firm to the word of life. The tendency for the church of Philippi as they're facing persecution is to not hold fast to God's word. It's not worth it for me to continue to stand for my testimony of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, don't let go of the word of God. So if we're to stand in our public life, we want to be holding on to God's word in our private life. Amen? We want to be studying it, meditating upon it, learning more of Jesus. Hold on to the word of life. And Paul says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul's longing to see fruit in the church of Philippi so that his life is not in vain. He wants his life to result in eternal fruit in the lives of others. So he's saying, go for it. Live for Christ. Keep growing in Christ. Work out your own salvation because when we stand before the Lord, the day of Christ, I want there to be fruit. Fruit in your life, fruit in my life as well. The end of verse 16 teaches to us that we're going to give an account to God for our life. Not for salvation. That we're in Christ. We're forgiven. We're justified but we are held responsible for how we used our lives. The Bible tells us our life is going to pass before a fire and the things that were of him are going to be gems and the things that weren't are going to burn up in wood, hay, and stubble. And Paul's referring to having to give account. Verse 17, yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul gives us a visual picture of how he saw his life, that his life was being poured out as a drink offering. This goes back to Exodus 20, verse 40 and 41. Water or wine would be poured out upon the altar as an offering before God. And and Paul's pouring out his life as an offering before God. Some believe that this is referring to the possibility that Paul may be executed in prison, saying, I'm being poured out. That could be but it also expresses this is the way that Paul lived his life. He's pouring it out before the Lord by serving others. How do we make our life an object of worship? By serving others, sacrifice and service for your faith. And he says, I'm glad, I'm rejoicing with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul didn't want the church of Philippi feeling sorry for him or going, oh, here's Paul in prison or here Paul might be executed. He says, I don't regret this. I'm being poured out before the Lord. I'm rejoicing, and I want you to be rejoicing with me as well. So personal ownership, personal ownership, your salvation. Doesn't belong to your spouse. Doesn't belong to your parents. Doesn't belong to your best friend. Doesn't belong to your church, your mentor, your pastors. Not their responsibility, not your not somebody else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. Just like a loving father that picks up the phone, speaking to an adult son, 
saying you are responsible for yourself. You pay your own bills. You are responsible for your own relationship with the Lord. Nobody else can do it for you. Nobody can. No one can force you to pick up the Bible. No one can force you to open it and read it with an open heart. No one can force you to memorize scripture, to pray, to fix your gaze upon the Lord and worship him in fear and trembling. It's yours. It's yours. Maybe you go, you know what? These are things that I would desire in my relationship with God. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Maybe you've said, man, I would love for God to use my life. Go for it. Work out what God is working in. Put some effort into it. Say, okay, Lord, I'm going to apply myself in these things. Take personal ownership of your salvation. Work it out. And then rely on his power. Rely on the Spirit's leading. We're taught in the New Testament to walk in the Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit saying? What's the Holy Spirit doing? What's God writing upon your heart, speaking to you through his word? The application, replace grumbling and fighting with rejoicing and caring. And this is going to be difficult if we really mean it, right? Because it's always there in every different compartment of life. We can be doing dishes, complaining about having to do dishes, and the things that are standing out to us that we don't like. Or we can be in a place of going, God, thank you so much that you've given us these dishes. You've allowed food for us to eat. Plus, we have a dishwasher, you know? If you don't have a dishwasher, praise God that you get more time with loved ones to do your dishes, right? It, it, it's a change of mindset, isn't it? You know, I, I, I got to stop doing this. Just grumble, murmur, 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 because I'm getting destroyed by the destroyer and choose to rejoice. Replace grumbling and fighting with rejoicing and caring, and then watch how your life shines. Just watch it shine. Watch how the Lord begins to use your life as you walk in that spirit of thanksgiving. Church, the Holy Spirit's here. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to apply this, so let's stand and pray together and ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Father, we love you. It's so exciting to study your word and see you, Jesus, and that you are the answer and the fulfillment to a weary soul and a soul that is filled with grumbling and complaining and fighting. And Jesus, we want to see you afresh upon the cross and your sacrifice, that you're the serpent that was lifted up. And would you encourage us and would you change us? Would you wake us up tonight to desire to work out our salvation? But we're very aware of needing your power, of abiding in you. So would you fill us afresh with your spirit? Would you allow us to rely upon your spirit? As we enter back into worship, may they not just be routine, but really an opportunity to begin to be before you in fear and trembling, express thanksgiving to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.